Craft Beer Radio presents Cult Beers from California at Saver 2009 with Vinny Chalurzo and Tommy Arthur. Tommy Arthur from the Lost Abbey and Vinny Chalurzo from Russian River dig deep in their cellars for beers to present for this special Saver tasting. Vinny poured Beatification and Toronado 20th Anniversary Ale. Tommy completed the other side of the equation with vintage pouring of Cable Car and Cuvée de Tommy. You can find the rest of the Saver salons at craftbeerradio.com slash saver. Craft Beer Radio is a free podcast available from our website or on iTunes. My name is Ray Daniels. I'm going to be your host this evening in Salon A. And it's my great honor and privilege to be here with uh, two of America's rock star brewers, um, Vinny Slurzo and Tommy Arthur. And uh, if you uh, don't know who they are, I don't know why you're here. <laughs> Um, so I don't think they need uh, much introduction. Uh, but they are here to talk about cult beers and to share some beers with you uh, that are uh, sort of from the special reserves uh, of their own uh, collections. And uh, so I'm going to get out of the way and let these guys talk about their beers and sample their beers and hand it off to Tommy. Thank you guys for coming. Um, oh, they, I'm sorry. You have your, I totally uh, forgot the announcements. The announcements, right, yeah. Ray's got a few things. Hold on. First snafu. All right. If you've got a cell phone, turn it off or turn it to stun so it doesn't interrupt us. Next is keep it clean, and that means you guys, <laughs> uh, because Beer Radio is recording this, and whatever you say or do in this room will be preserved for posterity on the Internet. Uh, when you're done, don't forget to take your glass with you. That nice little tasting glass, you only get one. So you're not going to get another one when you go downstairs. Don't forget to take it with you when you leave. I think that's it. Now that's it. I will now turn I can, it over. Now I go ahead. Uh, so thank you guys for coming. They, they told us back uh, when tickets went on sale that this salon sold out in about an hour. Um, so you guys are, are seemingly part of a very uh, lucky few people who get to sit here and listen to us blather tonight about our beers. Um, which we're really good at, but considering we haven't been drinking all day, um, we're not that good at it right now. Are they going to get the doors fixed? Uh, This is about the coolest room I think I've ever given a a little beer thing in, so this is kind of interesting. Maybe if we had a little bit of running water noise, it would be a little soothing, but but this is pretty cool. Uh, We're doing Cult Beers of California tonight. When Nancy approached us about doing a salon, uh, Vinny and I sort of talked about what could we do that, that would... Uh, sort of crossover from the beer to the food to the maybe even the wine world and in in the wine world cult cult wines are are, are sort of the, the the echelon they are sort of the prize uh, the trophies of of collectors and things and we're starting to see in the beer business that there's a lot of producers that are making very uh, small case totals rare beers things that are um, incredibly uh, treasured by the beer the the hardcore beer enthusiast and and Vinny and myself both um, because of the collections of oak barrel aging and things that we're doing. Um, seem to fall on a lot of those lists. So this evening we're going to pour four beers, uh, two from each of our breweries, a couple of which are, are very small-scale batch beers, and a couple of which are, are a little bit larger production, um, relatively speaking, for our breweries um, from our barrel program. So uh, four beers this evening. You'll get a sample of a couple of these things, which um, are, by, by most standards, um, really impossible to find. Um, so you're lucky in some ways, and I'm excited because some of these things I don't even get to taste on a regular basis. So with that, I'm going to turn the microphone over to Vinny. He's going to talk about the first beer this evening. All right. I think we'll uh, start pouring the first, first beer, which is our uh, Toronado 20th Anniversary Ale. Um, for uh, Well, first off, how many of you know of the beer bar, the Toronado, in San Francisco? So it's okay. good, probably 95% of the room, if not more. The... Uh, this beer came about, um, actually, uh, 
it was a night when, uh, after we were bottling some beer for Tommy. Uh, he had made a beer called Synergy for the Michael Jackson Beer Club. And at the time, he didn't have a production brewery. So um, he asked if he could bring up the 20 kegs or whatever it was quantity. And we bottled it at our brewery, bottle conditioned it, because we had all the equipment to do that stuff, uh, which, which now Tommy has. But at the time, um, he, was, he was short on that. So, um, and Dave Keene, the owner of the Tornado, came up and uh, helped us. And that night, we were eating dinner in our pub. And Dave, Dave said to me, well, you know, I'd like you to, you know, would you want to make my 20th anniversary beer? Which this was back in 2005, so the Tornado was just... 17 years old, going on 18. So we had about two and a half years to come up with an idea. And I asked Dave, and, and, and the unique thing about the, uh, the whole concept was that we have kind of a brewing philosophy of, you know, one, use the best ingredients. Uh, two, you know, always try to continue to improve our beers, learn. Sometimes that's, uh, you know, and, and, and in, my, in the first point in that we're, you know, using the best ingredients with all of these beers today, one of the ingredients also includes barrels. So it's not just malt, hops, water, and yeast. There's, there's the, the aspect of, of barrels. Um, with, with the second point of, of trying to improve and, and always, you know, better what we do, this was a one-shot beer. So it wasn't like if we brewed it and we screwed it up, we could make it again because it, it, you know, it was a 12 to 18 month aging in the barrel. So there was a, there's a lot of, that goes into it. Uh, and, and then the, the third point is, and it's quite simple, and Tommy probably lives by this rule too, is never make a beer that you wouldn't drink yourself. And in this case, though, we were making a beer for someone else. Um, luckily, Dave is a, a dear friend of ours, and um, he and I have quite similar tastes in beer, so I didn't think that was going to be a problem. So, so with that out of the way, uh, I, I did ask Dave, I said, well, what do you want? And he's, he gave me three cr- criteria. He said he wanted it to be dark, he wanted it to be funky, and he wanted it to be barrel-aged. And that was, that was all he gave me was, was those three criterias. Along the way, once we started talking more, he did, he did ask for a little higher alcohol. Uh, he wanted something that would age really well, which uh, this is now a couple years old, and it certainly does age well. So that was the beginning of it. Once, once we started thinking about it, <clears throat> I started with the idea of, well, instead of just making one beer and then Dave and I going through and picking the best barrels and making that the blend, I, I decided to make five different beers. And so this, this beer has actually started with five different components, uh, the first being a Belgian-style quadruple that fermented to 12% alcohol. And uh, it was aged in, uh, some of you may know the beers from Firestone Walker. They're here tonight. They make a beer called Double Barrel Ale. And uh, 20% or so of that beer is fermented in new American oak in the primary fermentation. It's kind of a a Burton Union type system that they have going down on the central coast of California in the town of Paso Robles. So Matt Brennelson, their their brewer, gave gave us some barrels. We aged the first component in in these used Firestone Walker barrels. And and Dave Keene was a part of this beer all the way through. He was there when we brewed it. He was there when we filled the barrels of of all the different batches. We tasted them along the way. Um, So the second and third component were uh, Belgian uh, strong dark ales, slightly lower in alcohol, 8 9% alcohol. Uh, Those were done in mostly neutral wood, but barrels that we'd used before, so they already had a lot of the the, the Britannomyces, the Lactobacillus, and Pediococcus. And for those of you that don't know what those are, the Britannomyces is a very aggressive yeast. 
Um, as I was saying last night at the event we did at RFD, a lot of people call it wild yeast, but the, that's just winemakers that call it wild yeast because they're afraid of it. Um, I, I was telling the other guys on stage that we should no longer call Britannomyces wild because it's, it's, as Tommy and I both know, we've used it in 100% Britannomyces beers where we don't use any conventional yeast. And it, if you didn't know it, you wouldn't even know it was 100% Brett. So, so that's when you hear, we're going to talk a lot about Britannomyces in this hour. And then Lactobacillus and Pediococcus are both bacterias that naturally sour the beer. And depending on how much you add and how long you let it sit, will give you the degrees of, of sourness. So, so the, the second and third components were used barrels that already were impregnated with Brett, Lacto, and Pedio. And then the, uh, the fourth component was uh, the uh, base beer that we call Sonambic, which is basically our term for spontaneously fermented beer. It's a contraction between Sonoma and Lambic that we came up with. And, and, and we'll be drinking that later with the beatification. And then the fifth component was our 100% Brett beer that... And, and each one of these components had a purpose uh, for the beer. The, the synambic was there pretty much to raise the acidity of the beer. The, uh, the, the 100% Brett beer was there really to mellow things out just in case if we had too much uh, dark color that we needed to soften up. So, so that was the general idea of the five components. We brewed those. We put them in the barrels. Uh, after four months, the first component, using the Firestone Walker barrels, we actually uh, had to take it out of barrels and put it into some neutral uh, or some new, well, new to us, but they were pretty neutral from the winery Merlot barrels because the, the wood character from these Firestone Walker barrels, when, when winemakers get barrels, they're different toast levels. So you can have medium toast, medium plus toast, heavy toast, heavy plus. I mean, it's, it's so Firestone uses these super heavily toasted American oak barrels. And, and the flavor was just over the top just after four months. So we actually pulled it out of barrels, blended in 25% of the uh, non-barrel-aged uh, component one to actually soften it up, and it still had this massive uh, oak character and toasted flavor. And um, so that was, that was sort of the, the life of it. It came down to blending it. Dave came up one uh, Sunday. Uh, we sat in our little side room in our pub, and, and I just laid out all these beers, and we sat there, and we wrote down percentages and, and came up with what would be the, the final blend, uh, which, which is a, dis- a disproportionate blend between the five different components. Uh, the bulk of the beer was the, uh, that quadruple, so that's where we got a lot of the alcohol from. I, I, I can't remember. I think it's 10 and three-quarter percent. It's pretty, pretty high up in alcohol. Ten ten point four three, and uh, the uh, if if you've been to the Toronado, you know the door. Uh, if you're sitting inside the Toronado, and that's what that drawing is of, and and it was amazing because I already had that drawn up from a friend of ours. I was working on another project that I wanted to kind of pay homage to the Toronado and what a great bar it was. And when Dave asked me to do this, I said, well, hey, I already have a logo for the, uh, for, <laughs> for, for the beer. And so the package came together quite, quite easily and quite simply. Um, so, so with that in mind, Dave and I sat there for about two hours and, uh, and two hours of, of drinking all these high alcohol beers. Uh, Dave looks at me and he goes, well, you know, we, we still have to work. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we still have to, you know, work the forklift, empty, bring barrels out, blend, and, and do all the stuff. So it was a, it was a full day of, uh, of blending, and then we, we bottled it the next day. But the, uh, like I said, the base was a lot of the, the Firestone barrel beer, the component one. Uh, the, the second and the third component um, added just a, a lot of volume to the beer. Um, the 
the beer, when, when you age beers that are this dark, sometimes it's hard to get acidity. Um, so, we, so we added, we used the, our spontaneously fermented beer, which is super, super acidic, which you'll see later. So we use that to add acidity to the beer, and then we use the fifth component to actually bring the color down a little bit to where we wanted it. So that's, that was kind of the life of the, the Toronado 20th anniversary. We only made 150 cases of this beer, I only have like four cases left, so this came out of Natalie, my personal seller. Uh, Dave, Dave has asked us to make his 25th anniversary beer, which is still three years away, so we'll start working on that in the next six months or so. We'll start putting some beer in the barrels. And uh, Tommy mentioned the cult-like status of some of these beers. Both the original cable car and the Toronado have been seen on eBay for about, I think it was 370, 370, 370 a bottle, which um, we, we wonder what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys may have noticed that we came around a second time with those bottles Thanks to uh, Vinny's generosity. Uh, We're only instructed to pour no more than two ounces per glass, but they didn't say we couldn't come around a second time. (laughs) It's kind of like GABF. This is why he's moderating the room, by the way. So so with that, uh, this will lead to the beer that Tommy made for, this was sort of the official 20th anniversary beer, but there was a lot of great one-off beers made, and Tommy uh, did a special beer for the Tornado's 20th anniversary called Cable Car, uh, Tornado's in San Francisco, hence the name, and we'll uh, segue. segue into that. Thanks, Vinny. Um, one of the coolest things about this industry, I think, for a lot of us is, is the people that support us, and I think the people that support us are the, the people that sell our beer, or the people that, that are responsible for um, running the, the bars and places where um, the respect is, I think, at the, you know, at, the, at the highest level possible. And I think what, what, what you're seeing from, from Vinny's um, friendship with Dave, and certainly my friendship from Dave, is this uh, level of respect, and I can't fathom what it must have been like to open a bar um, in San Francisco 20 years ago uh, when there wasn't a lot of great craft beer. On Haight Street. Uh, on Haight Street, no less, yeah. And so, you know, I've known Dave for about 10 years, um, and in that time we've developed a friendship. Vinny lives a lot closer there. They spend a lot more time with Dave, but I, I respect enormously what they've accomplished. Um, and because of that, I wanted to, as part of the 20th anniversary, um, we knew that, that Vinny was working on the official Tornado beer that David asked him to do, um, we put Cable Car together and didn't tell Dave we were doing it. And what we decided to do was to blend a beer from our barrel room. Um, we invoked the classic San Francisco Cable Car notion of tourism and how Tornado might be the anti-tourist place in Tornado, excepting, of course, if you're a beer aficionado, it's the first place on your list. So I was going to cut and say, if you get a chance, you should read both the labels, too, because they are, they are very pertinent uh, to the bar. I, I particularly like Tommy's. <laughs> um, I, I have a degree in English, so I, I take a lot of pride in, in, in the label part of our, our, our beers, especially the storytelling part of it. And I did spend a lot of time working on, on the, the backstory for this beer because I, I do value Dave's friendship and, and what they mean to us as brewers and producers and the support that they give us and the opportunity to do things like this. Um, you know, Vinny mentioned that they made 150 cases of this beer, and you guys sold some out of your pub, right? Yeah. So they, they did sell some of it at their pub. Um, we have made two batches of Cable Car now. We basically are releasing Cable Car every year to the Toronados. There's now two of them, one in San Francisco, the original Toronado, and there's also one in San Diego, um, which gives us great affinity for, for the having both uh, friendships with both owners. And 
we're going to release Cable Car every year in August to celebrate their anniversaries, and we're not going to sell the beer. We only provide the beer to the to the bar itself. We cannot walk into our brewery and buy a bottle of Cable Car at no point during the year. So what we've decided to do each year with Cable Car is go to our barrel room, find a couple of different oak barrels that we really like, that we think blend together. You'll notice that this is sort of blonde or, or, or golden in color. Um, we're going to make the beer every year in, in some capacity in this amber to golden color and it's going to have a lot of acidity that's sort of the 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 basis behind it is it's always going to be a barrel aged sour beer i think the first year we did this the original blend um, i think we got 45 cases plus one 15 gallon keg of beer Um, we created the original artwork for this beer and dave actually is the only uh, dave has the only piece of artwork that, that that we've used for an original uh, that is outside of the brewery. So that's sort of the level of respect that we have for them was not only did we have the bottle put together for them to sell, uh, we turned around and gave him the original piece of art, which hangs, I believe it's at his house. Yeah. Um, and that speaks to sort of what we believe is is the coolest part of this business is that we're all in this together. So um, what you're drinking tonight is, is actually Cable Car Batch 2. Um, there was about 57 cases of this one made. Um, and again, because we don't have... Um, pressure from distributors or pressure from sales forces or even concerns in terms of saleability because we're, we're basically selling it directly to, um, to two outlets now, um, Tornado North, Tornado South being in San Diego. Um, we don't concern ourselves with case totals. We don't worry about whether we make enough of it or whether we should make more so that we can make a lot of money on it. Um, what we're trying to do is go to our barrel room each year and make um, enough cases that the two bars now can get um, can get this. They also get a little bit of draft. And again, we, because we don't sell it over, we don't sell it over our bar. There's no concern for the numbers of bottles that we're producing. Um, and in some ways, that's where this cult, uh, cult basis or, or the cult beers starts to come into play. Is that when you don't produce beer with case totals in mind, you can go to your cellars, your your barrel rooms, and things like Vinny was saying, and you can select and hand select the best components. And when you do that you get the best beers possible. And I think that for, for myself, and I know for Vinny as well, when you start to talk about producing, when, when they made the, the, the five different batches of beer, they didn't set out and say, okay, we're going to take five different batches of beer and just blow them all back together, and that's what we're going to get because we need 350 cases of this beer. They went through with Dave in much the same way that we go through in the blending process, and we grab the, the choicest cuts, and we say, okay, two-fifths of this one and one-fifth of that one and three, you know, three-tenths of that one. This is how we go about blending these beers. And it is how the winemakers work. It is exactly the same premise of you get to blend things and, and build them in a, in a way that, you know, when you're a brewer, you often construct a beer from start to finish through the process. That is, is we're going to brew an IPA. We're going to make it with these four hops, these two malts. It's going to ferment, and two weeks later, it's going to go in the bottle. When we start to talk about beers like this, we look at them, and, and I often use the word that we get to imagine them. We get to imagine what we would like the beer to be in the same way that Dave said to Vinny, I'd like for you to make this beer for us, and I imagine it's going to have these pieces. It's going to be dark. It's going to be strong. It's going to be sour. And then it allows Vinny to take those, those things, which may be different than Dave's vision, and imagine the beer in a way that sort of blends the two together. Um, for us, the cable car is going to be every year, like I said, a chance for our brewers and, and myself to go to the barrel room under no constraints, no restrictions in terms of, 
um, saleability or marketability and pick pick what we think is is the homage. And they're a little bit different. The first batch was was a little spicier because we had some spiced beer that was aging in a barrel. Um, this one's a little bit more tart and, and acidic up front. The next one might not be as as orange in color because of the beers that we select. But the process each year is to go to the barrel room to say we need enough cases for these two locations because we're now talking about you know 50, 60 cases at at a minimum. And we don't look at it on a volumetric principle. We don't say, wouldn't it be great if we got an extra 40 cases so that we could sell them over our bar and make up all the money that you know we're losing by selling it to them? Um, not losing money, of course, but but uh, you know, with, with Vinny's comment, you know that these beers are starting to gain that cachet. You know, you could look at it and say we'd be losing money if we didn't if we didn't get 300 cases. And I don't think either one of us would ever look at that and say, you know, we need 300 cases. I have a feeling when you go to do the 25th. Um, anniversary beer that there won't be a specific case total handed down from above. You guys will go after the best beer, best flavor possible, and, and in that way, it's it's an awesome experience to work um, in that realm. So, and we had one of our most ruckus parties at our pub for the Toronado. Uh, Dave Dave loves rock and roll. He loves power trios <laughs> and um, bands that make Metallica look tame sometimes. <laughs> And uh, we were all in Austin at the Craft Brewers Conference a year or two before, and one of Dave's favorite bands, Broken Teeth, was playing, which is from Austin. So we, uh, we hauled all of our brewer friends, uh, Brian Grossman from Sierra Nevada and Garrett Oliver Sam. and Sam Calgione, and uh, it, was, it was a crazy night, and uh, Broken Teeth was playing. Dave was there, and afterwards Dave said to me, well, you still want them to come and play at your, at your pub? I'm like, yeah, what the heck, we'll, we'll do it. So for four months I was worried about this band coming to play because they were so loud. My ears were ringing for days after that. And, uh, and, and so the Toronado brought up a bus of 50 people or whatever to our pub to be one of the parties that week for their 20th anniversary. And it was one of the best, best bands we've ever had in the pub. They were perfect sounding. And uh, it was really cool because we, we had these shirts made with the logo on it, and uh, in the back of it was a, a Flemish term, the Utamulik, which uh, is roughly translates to how is this possible? How can this be? Like 20 years of the Toronado, how can this be? But um, so our whole staff was wearing the, the Toronado shirt, and uh, it, was, it was really cool. Um, it was probably even cooler for our staff because most of them don't have to buy any beer anymore when they go to the Toronado. The <laughs> staff of the Toronado loves them, so... Questions? Yeah, I want to, yeah. Do we want to do any questions now on this beer? After two beers, we two beers. That we're works. planning on ending with ten or fifteen minutes for questions at the end. But if you got some questions for him now, we can do that. Um, uh, you know, one of the things since somebody's hands are shooting up here, we're talking a lot about <clears throat> well beyond four ingredients here. Um, and one of the things that, that Vinny you talk about a lot is uh, barrels and aging in barrels. Um, as I recall, you come from some wine background. I do. Um, so maybe you just talk for a minute about how wine and how your knowledge of wine and love of wine maybe has influenced your making a beer. Yeah. Yeah, one of the, uh, one of the most important components of using barrels, and Tommy and I learned this together. I mean, we we'd already knew it, but we learned even more about it. It was a trip that Tommy and I took to Belgium together along with Sam Calgione from Dogfish Head, Adam Avery from Avery Brewery, and Rob Todd from Allegash. The five of us took a, a trip to Belgium a few years ago. And um, if any of you have ever been to Cantillon, the Lambic Brewery in Brussels, 
Belgium, they have this, what looks like a medieval torture device, and they put chains inside, stainless steel chains with pretty sharp edges inside this this machine that tumbles the barrels, and that's how they clean the barrels. It's like the most old-fashioned way of cleaning barrels. Uh, Tommy and I were dreaming up if we could have this Nor- NorCal, SoCal, like, medieval torture device barrel cleaner <laughs> that we can move between the breweries just to say we use it. I don't know if it's the most effective way to clean, clean barrels, but, but my point was that cleanliness of your barrels is super important. You would think just the opposite, that we're using, you know, Britannomyces, which isn't looked upon too well amongst most brewers and winemakers. The, the lacto and pedio are bacteria, quite frankly, and, you know, they, they do a good job for what we're doing, but the wood is porous. These bacterias... And the super aggressive yeasts and brett get impregnated into the wood. And if you just leave them and don't do anything, you end up with acetobacter, which is vinegar. And so sometimes acetobacter is a component of these beers we make, but it's certainly not the end all to what we're doing, and we don't want that. And I can speak for both of us that neither of us really like acetobacter that much. So um, cleanliness of barrels is really important. So learning that from the wine industry and carrying it over was, was certainly something that, uh, you know, that, that I brought to the, to the table. I remember a, a round table that Tommy and I were both on in, at the Craft Brewers Conference in San Diego many, many years ago. And it's funny thinking about what I talked about then and how we treat barrels and now how we deal with them. It's totally different. I'm I'm glad I didn't write a book about it or something back then because <laughs> it would have been totally wrong of, of how I, what we do now. So. All right, we're going to open the cuvee to Tommy now. Rolling right along? Okay. Um, what Vinny neglected to mention was that he grew up in a winery and his parents owned a winery, and so uh, it's okay. I'll tell the story for you. <laughs> it's a small... I think the first time... My- I don't. I can't remember if I met you, but I remember going to a homebrew thing. Yeah, the homebrews that your folks, the Southern California Homebrewers Festival, was at my family's winery in Temecula, California, which is uh, in Southern California. It's just about fifty miles north of San Diego. And the SoCal Homebrewers Fest, the first five years, was on the property of my family's winery, and then after that, it uh, it moved because it got too big. And the festival is still going on. It's like two thousand homebrewers get together and basically share their homebrewers for a weekend. It's kind of a homebrew Woodstock festival. So I think that is where we met the first time. <laughs> so, so that's where my family's winery was. My folks are now retired, and they're in the beer business now with me <laughs> and Natalie. So. Okay. Um, you've been in the business, when did you get, 95, 96? Uh, beer? Yeah, when did you get in Nin- the business? 94. 94. Yeah. So I, I was reading something the other day that was sort of um, talking about businesses and how things work and it basically said that you know you have to spend about 15 years um, before you you yeah, the stupid unmarked bottles you have to spend about 15 years doing something before you get really good at it um, and Vinny's now been making beer for 15 years professionally and um, I'm in my 13th year of making beer professionally and we've both I think been using oak barrels and wild yeast and things for over 10 years now and I think what you're starting to see, at least from our conversations, is that we're starting to really understand what's possible um, and what we can and can't do. The reason I frame it this way is that we're drinking Cuvée de Tommy, or originally Cuvée de Tomé, because it was, it was more French and more haughty that way. Um, um, Vinny also has a rule that he's never going to name a beer after himself, so I'm going to brew vindication for him. Um, <laughs> So this is the only beer that we've ever named, or I've ever named after myself. Um, I think it's a pretty damn good one. If you're going to name a beer after yourself, you better make a pretty good one. 
Um, Cuvée Tommy starts off as a Belgian dark strong ale. It's made with raisins. Um, these days it's known as Judgment Day. It's one of our five standard Lost Abbey beers. The base beers? The base beers, yeah. Um, and then we also take that base beer, send it to any number of bourbon, brandy, or French oak barrels where it meets uh, a, a, a slew of wild yeast, as Vinny mentioned, a cocktail, and it also um, has some sour cherries added. It's at least 10.5% because that's what, that's what it is when it hits the barrel. There is a measure of fermentation that goes on in the barrel itself. Um, we've been producing this beer since 1999. Um, it is sort of regarded in many circles as sort of one of the things that really put us on the map um, in terms of flavors and things. It was the original uh, sour beer that we produced, or wild beer in that way. Um, back when I was making beer on a very small scale as opposed to now, uh, we would make you know two to four oak barrels of this per year. Um, this batch that we're currently drinking um, hasn't been released yet. It will be released next week. And we made about 40 oak barrels of it this year. So we're still talking about an enormously small amount of beer by, by, you know, by standards. Um, we produced 300 cases of the 750 milliliter bottles and 300 cases of the splits, the 375 milliliter bottles. So we're talking about less than 500, what would, what would be case equivalents of about 500 cases total um, of something. And, and in doing this project this year, um, in terms of making this beer, we actually went from... Um, 200 cases to you know 600 cases worth of beer uh, in one year, and I think we've kept the quality of the beer uh, where we'd like it to be. It's a little flat. We've been having bottle conditioning issues, so I, I'll point that out. Um, it's a challenge sometimes when you put beer in a bottle with wild yeasts and live yeasts to know exactly where they're going to land. Um, it's kind of hard sometimes to understand where they're going to fall with, with uh, residual sugars and wild yeast and, and ongoing fermentations in the bottles. So we tend to undershoot by just a little bit so that we don't uh, explode bottles and things. Um, we also find that beers like this uh, don't typically get opened right at, at release point, at the release date, and we, um, over time, kind of fall into a, a range that we like. And I know you've had lots of conversations with yourself, I'm sure, about, about what the, the, the proper levels are. Um, it's a challenge sometimes to make some of these beers because they're so idiosyncratic. Hey, I, I noticed there's no label on this bottle. What, what, what's up with that? It's taking the, the uh, letter cult. in this the is, Yeah, This is incredibly cult. It's so cult you can't buy it. Um, we actually have released the cuvee uh, the past two years in a 375 milliliter bottle. This is the first time we've produced a 750 milliliter bottle of this beer. As such, the labels will be delivered to my brewery on Wednesday. Um, which is a little bit too late for this. So um, we have a history when it comes to putting beers in bottles of not being um, very good about the scheduling side of things. Um, we're real good about wanting to make them in things, but sometimes you wake up and realize that it takes longer um, to to produce the labels than, than you think. So uh, we just flat out didn't have them, um, and so we just shipped them with without. So. Oh, well, Lyle's got a question over here. Yeah, Lyle. It, are all these bottles from the same batch? Because the second pour I got, she's still got the first pour. They taste different. Welcome, Not to, my, a lot. welcome to my world, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're both good, but... <laughs> actually, actually, this is a salon, so welcome to our world. Um, yeah, the challenge is, is that sometimes the top, the, you know, the cases on the top of the palate, you know, have more than the cases on the bottom of the palate. Um, I tasted these bottles before I left the brewery on Tuesday, and we've been opening them for the last two weeks, and most of them pop pretty well. Um, a lot of it has to do with temperature. When you get them really cold, uh, they don't—they they tend to, you know, suck more of the gas, and then you don't see that. So, 
Um, it'll be interesting because we're pouring. Uh, for those of you that, that are enjoying this beer, and I don't know if, if you are or not, but if you are enjoying this beer, we are. this is the one of the four beers that's in this room tonight that will be on the floor. We did actually bring this as one of our, our two beers for this evening. Um, it's going to be paired with some sort of a chocolate uh, black forest cake, I believe. Sounds good. Sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> <laughs> Having not tasted the cake, but what I know about that, I think will be okay. Um, you know, the thing that Vinny was talking about earlier that I, I think is most interesting about this is that there is so much sort of, um, there's, there's, there's this sort of movement away from the technology. When you get into doing what we're doing, there isn't a lot of technology that we can put into the blending in terms of beer. It comes back to a very hedonistic thing. We sit down, we taste them, we decide what we like about each particular barrel. And as Vinny was mentioning with the Tornado beer, how many barrels did you guys do? How many oak barrels did you have going? Do you know? Yeah, I think I think total for the Tornado we had probably four of each component. So uh, well, minus the the one beer that didn't, the one that was just Brett. So there was sixteen, and probably I know in the end there was three or four barrels left that were just left over, and uh, they ended up just going into something else yeah. later on. But uh, we often make beers that aren't even named there. We call them orphan beers. So if you go into our barrel room, you see a lot of barrels that say orphan one, orphan two, <laughs> orphan three. Those are the batches of orphan beer that we make. Some of them we make with a lot of uh, bacteria added for acidity. Uh, other, uh, other ones we, uh, you know, they have a purpose to them in a the background. But a lot of times we're making beers that will never see the, uh, you know, the market. Yeah, we're, we're running a foster home for barrels, too. <laughs> well, we're, we're, I'm, I'm going to ask you some more about that when we yeah. get to Q&A if there's not enough questions, because you guys have, like, totally lost the handle between, like, a batch <laughs> of wort and, 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 a, and a finished beer. Yeah, we'll, we We'll have. talk about that some more. I, I have to add, though, at, at Tommy's, where he, when he, where he used to make his barrel beers at the original Pizza Port, uh, it's in Solana Beach. If you've been to North County, San Diego, it's right, in the, it's right on the beach, right, real close to the water like a block away, and the barrels actually sat outside under a, a shed, if any of you had ever seen it, in the back, you know, pretty much open to the weather, and it's at the beach, so it's pretty cool, but it was, it was like just outside, these old barrels chalked up, and, uh, and, and it was pretty, pretty rudimentary, and it wasn't near like both our barrel rooms are now, which are, you know, forkliftable, and our, our barrel room's climate-controlled and humidified and stuff, and I know Tommy's working towards that. We, we weren't there to begin with. And my, my second story is uh, there was another time where I actually brewed a batch of cuvee for Tommy, uh, another time for the Michael Jackson Beer Club, and um, it, was a, it was quite a beer when you're taking these raisins and... It was a. It's it's quite a. It's quite a process that this beer goes through, and uh, it's a pretty pretty neat to uh, brew someone else's beer and see what goes into it. And in a way, it takes you back because we. You were home brewing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes you back to home brewing and how. Sometimes, as commercial brewers, you sometimes <laughs> think you you, you 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 simplify things to simplify the process, and then when you start thinking about adding. Uh, raisins to the, you know, to the boil, and then you okay, okay. Well, if I add raisins to my kettle, how do I strain them out? And and then the cherries to the uh, to the uh, you know to the barrels. And for us at the time, we'd started making a beer called Supplication when we brewed 
uh, 10 barrels of, of the cuvee for Tommy. And um, so it was good to do it because we, we had a beer going with cherries in the barrel, but I didn't know how we were going to get them out. So it was good that his beer came first. <laughs> and we, uh, we got to experiment on the, uh, on the cuvee when we made that. Well, they're pouring beatification now. Why don't you tell them a little bit about that? We might even get you some here. No. He's got it. We're cool. He's got a cup. Yeah, I'm Mm-hmm. Yeah, pucker up. <laughs> so, uh, a couple of uh, years ago, when we let's see, I talk about the orphan beers on this, and. Uh, I'm not even, I'm trying to remember if I used the label of, uh, yeah, it was, yeah. So a couple, when, when Tommy and I took the, uh, the trip to, uh, to Belgium, um, with, with the other guys, Tommy and I had a flight all the way back to San Francisco together and we had been to Cantillon, which I had already been before. Um, but we had also been to Dre Fontaine and to um, Boone. So we'd been to three pretty well-known Lambic producers. So on the way home, and Tommy and I were sitting together in the plane, we were uh, just talking about and dreaming how we could spontaneously ferment. So my idea was to uh, build a cool ship and break some barrels apart and hang them above the cool ship. A cool ship would be a shallow, open, wide fermenter, just like they have in Belgium, and then have these slats of wood hanging that were barrels that had Brett Lactopedia already in them. And then when the cool ship, when the beer steamed up, because you would pump the hot wort, the unfermented beer into it, then they would drip back down, and, and that's how you'd get the, the, the Brett and the Lactopedia and all the other bugs and critters, as we call them, back in the, in the wort. Tommy had this idea to use the mash tun as a fermenter because if you don't clean it, if you just, if you just empty the grain out and rinse it, you, you can get some pretty uh, lively bugs growing in your, in your mash tun. So his idea was to use the mash tun as the, uh, as the place, as, or they call it in Belgium, the horny tank. And so then in, in Belgium, these breweries have a horny tank, which is very much alive, and that's where all these bugs and critters live. So, so I took Tommy's idea and, and ran with it, and, and we made, we've done it three times now, where we do a sour mash, which means that we're basically, we, the, let's say the brew day is on Saturday. Well, Friday night, we mash in all of our grain into the mash tun, and we let it sit in there overnight so it sours. And we don't so much do this to sour the grain and the wort, although that's a secondary effect. We're doing it more to season the mash tun so that the mash tun is really alive with all these different crazy, uh, you know, yeasts and bacterias. So then we do a regular runoff, and then we boil the wort, the unfermented beer. We add aged hops, just like they would in, in Belgium. The malt bill is 40% unmalted wheat, 60% malted barley, just as a, or close to what a lambic would be in, in Belgium. Um, we came up with that term synambic that I told you earlier, because lambic is sort of a protected uh, term. And then we send the wort back to the uh, to, to the mash tun and all we've done is rinsed it out so there's probably still some grain floating in there too and and the first time we did it I was thinking about uh, our like when the 
health inspector comes in and she says you can't have the food from this temperature to that temperature. If you've ever any of you ever been to like culinary school, they teach you that. And and I was thinking, well, that's the perfect temperature that I want this ward at because it's going to be the most lively temperature. It's when bacteria is supposed to grow. So I came in on Sunday, and now it's Sunday, and. I was shocked when I opened the mash tun and there was a full fermentation going on. It was like huge croissant or huge head on the, the tank. It was super, super hot. It was, in fact, it was way too hot. And it was like six in the morning and I'm calling. I think I might have even called Tommy. I'm probably waking people up going, it worked, it worked. And Natalie, Natalie, my wife and business partner was like, what the heck are you calling me for at six? Like, go, shouldn't you be next to me in bed? <laughs> so... So the first time we did it, it was a little acidic. So then the second time we did it, I brought the temperature down. Uh, and then the third time we've done actually we've done it four times now. So each time we've done it, we brought the temperature down. And the subsequent times, the second, third, and fourth time, we didn't have the fermentation going, which is probably a good thing. Uh, because what happens is if, if the fermentation starts too early, the, the acidity, the bacteria grow too fast. And the Britannomyces doesn't have a time to add its funkiness to the beer. And uh, so, so the Sonambic is what we call the beer when it's in barrels. And then when we make the blend, it creates beatification. So this, this is the third batch of beatification that we've made. It's a blend of the second and third batches of spontaneously fermented beer. It's truly 100% spontaneously fermented. We don't add any form of yeast, whether it's Saccharomyces regular yeast or... Britannomyces, the stronger aggressive yeast. Uh, we don't add any bacteria. It all happens. There's much more in the beer than just Brett, Lacto, and Pedio. There probably is Saccharomyces, regular yeast, uh, in it as well. We've, we've never had it analyzed. Uh, it, it's a great blending beer as well. If we have a beer that doesn't have enough acidity, we'll, we'll use this beer. But one thing that we found is that it's got a big grapefruit character to it. And I'm sure a lot of you got, it's a pretty obvious component. And there is a, a, a yeast or wild yeast out there that contributes that character. And I, off the top of my head, I can't remember what it is. And it probably doesn't really matter because it's, it's, it's just a word, but, (laughs) um, but there are some, some yeasts out there that contribute this huge grapefruit character. So we obviously have that going on and that's contributing a big part to, uh, to what this beer is. Yeah. Question is, what temperature do you keep the mash overnight? Yeah, um, boy, that first time when I got in, it was fermenting at like 85 degrees, which was a little, it was a little warm. I think that temperature they tell you for the health department is, you know, between like... 90 and 98 and 120. Yeah, yeah, so whatever it is, Tommy said 90 and 120, but we were, we were right there. The next time we did it, we, we started it. 70, and then I think after that, 65. And I think the most recent batch, we went into the mash tun at 60 Fahrenheit. And then for those, for the second time we spontaneously fermented, it took about five days for it to get going. And then the third and fourth time, it took a couple weeks. So basically, we had wort or unfermented beer sitting in the barrels until it finally gets going. And I, and I will throw out there that... Uh, uh, Rob Todd, who's who's here tonight, pouring from Allegash. He has a proper cool ship now, and I've actually been at Allegash on days when they've done their spontaneous beers, their their, uh, their cool ship beers, where they are trying to and are spontaneously fermenting. And it's pretty cool that a brewery has gone to these these lengths to build a whole separate room 
and, and they've got this beautiful, cool ship, this shallow fermenter to spontaneously ferment beers. That same day, I went through and tasted almost every barrel of spontaneously fermented beer because somehow I, I duped Rob into thinking that I actually knew what I was doing. <laughs> so, so he and Jason, as head brewer, and I went through and tasted every barrel. And, uh, and it, was, it was pretty cool to see the different stages of all the beers that they've done and how they've changed. So by, by no means is this something that's unique to us. Jolly Pumpkin is doing some spontaneous fermentation. I'm not sure what Tommy has not going, yet. not yet, not but yet. he will. And, uh, and, and I don't know m- <laughs> many more that are doing it yet, but it will happen. But this couldn't have happened without the encouragement from, uh, from Jean, uh, from Cantillon, Jean Van Roy from Cantillon. He's the one in his family. He's, I don't know what generation he is of Cantillon in Belgium, fourth generation maybe. His dad, uh, Jean-Pierre, uh, is uh, sort of the matriarch. You know, he runs... Patriarch. Run, patriarch. Be, me, yes, yeah. patriarch. <laughs> so, anyways, actually, it's probably his, his wife probably does run the, the brewery. But, uh, anyways, um, but some of the Lambic brewers there, they, they said you can't spontaneously ferment anywhere except in Land, which is the district, <laughs> or in Brussels, where Cantillon is, and and Jean was just the opposite. Jean was so encouraging, and two two months after I was that we were there with with Sam and Rob and Adam, Natalie and I were back just on our own trip to Belgium, and that was a great trip because I I got to go into Cantillon's barrel room and just taste tons of barrels with Jean, and he just kept encouraging me to do it and and I told him our idea and he he was he was so behind it when so many of the other Belgian brewers were saying it, it can't be done and what's interesting is that Jean always calls it American Lambic when I whenever I, I email or he and I talk or you know we see each other I, I just saw him in Boston um, last month at the craft brewers conference he he said he was so excited when you know, he knew I was going to be there. And this email, he's like, how's your American Lambic? And then I saw him, how's your American Lambic? So he doesn't so much buy into that, that idea that Lambic is a protected uh, name that only they use. We, I still abide by it. We don't call it Lambic per se. But um, it's, it, it was neat to have that encouragement from one of the oldest Lambic producing families in the world. Definitely. Definitely. Well... How about questions from you guys? You've been uh, very patient. Okay, fine. We were giving you beer. That does help. <clears throat> but uh, maybe you've got some questions for these guys. Let me give you a microphone and you can shout it out here. 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys have talked about using a lot of different yeasts, be it uh, bread or Saccharomyces or this wild stuff. What do you use when you're going to bottle condition it? Do you inoculate the beer the bottle condition, or is there enough stuff in there? No, we I, we actually just I just hired a new head brewer in January, and I did that with the the uh, explicit hope of creating a real true bottle conditioning program um, where we're actually using a microscope in the laboratory. We use dry yeast these days. Um, one of the challenges today is is that uh, the dry yeast that we're currently using we bottle condition all of our beers. Everything that we release is bottle conditioned. Um, it works great for all of our standard beers. And we're finding that the dry yeast that we're using for our bottle conditioning program for a lot of our barrel beers isn't working as well as I'd like it to. And, and I, I say that in honesty because, um, you know, we get a lot of feedback from, whoa, 
uh, we get a lot of feedback from from the consumers, uh, more so to the high end stuff than we do on the on the regular basis. So we're currently using a dry yeast. We're we're pitching that at at packaging time. When we do the barrel beers, we we rehydrate and we add that at barrel at at, at bottling time. Um, I know Vinny's doing the same thing. We can't get the amount of, of residual yeasts and bacteria and things that are in the beer itself. If you added fresh sugar, it would take a long, long time. And the Belgians refer to that as loric. It's lazy, as they call it, lazy goose or lazy fermentation. Uh, we can't afford in this day and age to be lazy about our re-fermentations in the bottle. So we are actively re-pitching a yeast. And you have your own. He's got his own house. His, his is interesting. He's got his own house culture. So Yeah, we, we use a uh, local wine yeast. And... Uh, it uh, came from, uh, if any of you are in the wine, there's a small little winery that's actually located in a hop kiln on River Road as you go out to the Sonoma Coast uh, called Martinelli. Not the apple Not the juice you can people. get. Yeah, <laughs> The Martinelli Winery is in an old hop kiln. And um, they uh, have a vineyard uh, it's called Jackass's Inn. And... Um, but I can say jackass because it's name. It's not, you know. Go with the French pronunciation, jacquaz. But uh, anyways, this, this yeast has now become the premier uh, Pinot Noir yeast. William Sellium, which is a super, super cult uh, winery out on Westside Road in Healdsburg, uh, uses it. They used it to such a degree that the yeast is now called the William Sellium yeast, although it's, it, was, it was a natural native yeast from the jackass Zinfandel vineyard uh, in... Uh, <laughs> In, out in the Russian River Valley. And so we use that, and I used to use it in a liquid form. I would get it in a liquid form, and then, but that was quite frankly a pain in the butt because the prep time it took for my yeast house to grow it, and we have a very minor lab program that we do, and that's, that's something. I've, I've got a new guy starting on Monday, actually, who's going to bring that up and do a lot more. Uh, more recently, I've switched to a, uh, another local native yeast, but luckily I can get in in a dry form. And um, actually, probably Tommy's probably interested in this. And it's a Syrah yeast from a uh, local vineyard called Rockpile. And I can't remember the winery that does Rockpile Syrah. But, um, but it is also local native Sonoma County yeast as it's been cultured. I, I really like using wine yeast to bottle condition with because one on the, on the regular Belgian beers, it usually gives this real nice minerally character like to Damnation, which is our Belgian strong golden ale. It really adds a whole other layer of complexity to the barrel-aged beers. These are wine yeasts that are already used to working in an acidic environment and, so, and an alcohol, as Tommy just said, so they, they, work, they work especially well. Uh, for this. So they are Sonoma County native yeast. And I like to add that it adds, we have a little bit of Sonoma County in every bottle. So, you know, I'm, I'm very proud that we're in Sonoma County. I love, I love, we're known, you know, we're known for wine, but we, you know, it's where beer started, you know. I mean, right now, Sonoma County is known for, you know, Lagunitas Breweries, the largest, and Berry Public, and us, small little brewery called Moonlight that gets a lot of recognition. Um, but the first, you know, beyond Anchor, the first small craft brewery was New Albion in 1976 in the town of Sonoma, and that's where craft brewing, you know, started was in Sonoma. Yes, you can say Anchor, and, and I appreciate everything he's done, that Fritz has done, but... Jack McAuliffe at New Albion did everything on a shoestring, and he did it, you know, by finding equipment startup, and yeah. startup, and and it was it was totally different for him, and and there was there's a great you know appreciation for that, but you know, so we have Anchor down the road, and then New Albion was was in Sonoma, and you know, it's where it's where craft brewing started in America. How about more questions? 
You guys are well well plied with beer. All right, that means I that means I get to ask questions. Fair enough. I I was out in Tom, at Tommy's Brewery in in November, and you know my brewing background is pretty traditional German lagers, English ales. You make a batch of wort, you ferment it, you, you bottle it, and that's the beer. These guys like totally have lost <laughs> track of that. So my impression. And I'm going to ask you to sort of call it out and, mm-hmm. and tell me. You make a batch of wort. You ferment it. Sometimes it gets split up into different kind of barrels. You blend it in different ways. How many permutations, how many variations are there? How many p- different places could one batch of wort wound up? Um, it's funny. When I used to work in the brew pub environment, I had – this is a great story. But when I was in the brew pub environment, I, 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 got, this, I got this one recipe. And we made six different beers from one recipe. Um, it was the same recipe. We'd water it down. We'd water it up. We'd add this yeast. We'd take this into it. Um, so permutation is great because you can do all kinds of different things with it. Um, we currently have, on the floor this evening, we're going to pour cuvee, which, as Ray mentioned, as we talked about, comes from our judgment day. That's, that's one base beer that then goes into the oak barrels and becomes cuvee. We're going to pour angel share this evening, which is our barley wine aged in, in uh in oak barrels, that beer doesn't have a permutation. It is brewed specifically for um, for that. We never pour the beer without being oak aged. Uh, that being said, we have six different beers that we're going to make every year um, that come from the oak program. That means that we're going to make a specific beer for release. Now, the challenge comes up is whether or not we go out to the library of things to enhance is a horrible word, but to, to blend and in the scheme of things when we went to package the cuvee and Vinny was talking about this and I wanted to bring this up and that's why I asked about how many different barrels they had when we went to the cuvee program this year we had over 40 different oak barrels that had cuvee base beer with cultures with cherries in them not all 40 made the cut not all 40 ended up in the in the base or in the in the blended beer that we tasted and as such we still have some orphans which we have a lot of orphans these days we are always moving things out um there's a lot of times where we'll go produce something, make X amount of barrels, and then some of it will or will not make the cut. We're getting ready to package Older Viscosity, which is our dark, strong ale aged in bourbon barrels, for about nine months to a year. We just tasted another 40 of the, the barrels that we had going, one of which was completely sour. I mean, so sour it was, it was notably bad, okay? But it's interesting because now we have a black beer that's really sour and acidic, and we're holding it because it might offer us color or flavor or potential downstream in the way that no, most breweries would say that's incredibly off and we can't do anything with it. And we're looking at it like we don't have anything like this in the brewery at all. <laughs> like this is awesome because like, we, we have a lot of color. We have acidity. We have all kinds of things for blending. That being said, we do have a, a set of beers that are called Veritas designed to be one-time, one-place beers. Basically, uh, we go to the to the to the barrels and we blend them together. They're not part of our program in the sense that we're looking for um, saleability. Again, we're looking to, to learn from them. So most of the Veritas releases have been 50 cases or less. And a lot of the orphans end up going into Veritas blends where we go and say, okay, that beer, we don't have a home for you. And it tastes like this. And this one doesn't have a home and it tastes like this. We'll start with those two being the, the base beer for the next Veritas and say, what can we do to affect the flavor and how can we go down that road. Yeah, very non-Germanic in, in, in most ways. I love it. Uh, we, we, yeah, we got about when, three, minute, three, four minutes, so when we, maybe uh, when we, This would be quick. When we made the one batch of cuvee, uh, well, the base beer at the time was called the mother of all beers. Now it's Judgment Day. Um, we had some leftover 
I think it was, yeah, it was the judgment day or the time yep. called Mother of All Beers. And at the time, we were really low on beers in our pub. This is before we had a production brewery. It was summertime. We were down to something like three or four beers in the pub, and we always want to have more than that. So we had some Temptation, which was the very first barrel-aged beer that I ever made, so kind of the equivalent of the cuvee for Tommy. To me, it was the Temptation. And uh, we took some of the Temptation, and I don't remember the exact blend. I think it was 60% uh, Temptation and 40% Judgment Day, or at the time it was called Mother of All Beers. And we made a beer called Desperation because we were, <laughs> we were desperate to, to, to get something on tap. It was a one-off beer. It's never been, never been blended before. It's never been served before. It's brew pub only, never got bottled. But uh, there was another life of, of Tommy's base beer and another life of Temptation. It was called Desperation, so... Luckily now we have enough tank space that we can keep 10 or 12 beers on tap at all times. But maybe we'll have to blend it again. Yeah, no, we talked about it. It was pretty good. We haven't talked about it. Well? I think there was one question. Yeah, we got a question on there. Let me throw my catcher real quick. Um, how, how would you, if you had like a total novice before you, how would you introduce someone or inoculate them to, uh, to sour beers? To, to homebrew or drink them? Yeah, so the question was, how do you get someone into sour beers? I, I think you uh, start with Orval, which is, as Tommy knows, is my favorite beer. Uh, it's not sour, per se, but it's got Britannomyces, and it shows the character of Brett. And, and I think when you drink Britannomyces-type beers, that leads into maybe sour beers. I think that's a good way to, to go. It's a beautiful beer. So I don't know if Tommy has any... I suggest you start them with lemonade when they're about three years old. <laughs> Instead of soda pop. Instead of soda pop. My daughter's on a steady diet of lemonade these days. She prefers the pink variety, which is good because that, that means she'll probably enjoy creeks and, and, uh, and raspberry beers. Um, you know, sour beer is, is probably the, the, the final frontier. It's an acquired taste. It's sort of the, it is sort of the long term. You know, I think as most beer drinkers go, they want to get to that point where they can appreciate it. Um, there are some out there that are less sour than others. Um, I, you know, for me, it's, it's a matter of you have to sort of be trained to like that flavor, and most beer doesn't go in that direction because most beer, when you taste it, if it has an acidity or if it has a tartness to it, you're taught that that's not, not acceptable or it's, it's, not, not, it's not well-made beer. Um, so that being said, there is opportunity, I think, these days... Food. And with food, yeah, especially. Um, you know, these days there is more opportunity. I think that the, there's a lot of American producers, craft beer producers out there that are doing sour beers that aren't as, um, you know, as aggressive as the beatification is. I mean, the, 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 the pH on the beatification is probably pushing, you know, you know, eat a hole in your stomach kind of, you know, which is good because we like that. But, I mean, it'll, it'll strip the enamel off your teeth. And, and, uh, and we can appreciate that because of the way it's produced, but there's a lot of people that would spit that out in a heartbeat. I gave the keynote speech at the Craft Brewers Conference a couple years ago in Austin, yeah. and uh, it was the most frightening thing I've ever done to speak to 1,500 of my peers. And I, I had the guts to pour this beer as the, 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 the opening beer. And it was probably a huge waste of a lot of beer. <laughs> but uh, our, our distributor from Philly, Eddie Friedland, uh, who distributes both of our beers at Origlio, he was telling me he was going around picking up bottles and drinking it. And, but I wanted to shock the, the, the audience with, with what can be done in craft brewing. So, Well, I think you accomplished that goal. <laughs> and uh, I think it's fair to say that you both uh, have impressed a hell of a lot of people with your beers over the years. And uh, let's give these guys a round of applause.
Thank you both Thanks, very Ray. much. We enjoyed it. And uh, please, everybody, enjoy uh, Saber 2009. Perfect. Look at that. Perfect. 715. Not raised for his rodeo. Thank you for listening to Craft Beer Radio. If you have questions or comments, you can email us at beer at craftbeerradio.com. Craft Beer Radio is released under the Creative Commons license. Visit craftbeerradio.com for more information. The opening and closing music is Last Hurrah from the band The Lights Out. You can listen to more of their music at their website, thelightsout.com. Some people get a-